Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're kind of marching through this opening section. Really, it's, um, it's all one unit from verse 3 down to verse 12. But uh, last Sunday, we looked at just verses 3, 4, and 5. And you'll notice he begins, Peter begins in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we said Christ's glorious resurrection is in many ways the hinge pin of our, of our faith. Uh, this is really the anchor of it. Without it, Paul says we are, our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins. Um, we have no atonement that has been made for our sins. And as Peter is writing to believers in churches scattered throughout what we would call modern-day Turkey. He's addressing God's people as they're standing on the threshold of intensifying persecution, intensifying uh, suffering. And he's encouraging them in the midst of that to stand firm in the true grace of God. That's how he ends the letter in verse 14 of chapter 5. He wants them to live holy lives in the midst of that trial, those difficulties. For his readers then, this letter would have come as a word of hope in the midst of an ever-darkening world. It would have come uh, as a word of hope for those who were being, we said, pushed to the margins of society. It it would come as a word of hope, encouraging them to fix uh, their gaze upon what awaits them in the world to come. And so Peter begins here, as he does in verse 3, with a word of blessing, a word of praise to the triune God. That's what he says here. Blessed be God is just saying, praise be to God. We ask, well, what is it that prompts him to start a letter in this way, on this, for this purpose? And we said it's connected to what God has done for him, for his readers, and what he's ultimately God has done for us as believers. He says we, uh, God is to be blessed and his son Jesus Christ is to be blessed because they are one. He said because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he says the living God is worthy of praise because he has, he has caused the heart of every follower of Jesus Christ to be born anew. God in his mercy has transformed us, spiritually speaking, from a walking corpse to a living soul. And we said this rebirth is made possible. It is, it is, uh, it is uh, brought to its fullest uh, 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 sense because Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the grave. Jesus' triumph over sin in, and death at the resurrection, we said that is the coronation of his saving work in his first coming. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, he's no savior. We have no savior. But Peter knew and we know by the eyewitness testimony of his word, that we have a living Savior. And not only do we have a living Savior, we saw last time that by his great mercy, who, is, who by his great mercy has made us into a living soul, he has also ushered us into a living hope. Right? You see that in verse 3. We have been given a living hope. We have an ever-growing, ever-expanding uh, confidence in God as it relates to the future. Our experience of that hope grows, it increases as we walk further and further through the Christian life. And so as as Peter's writing to these believers, this living hope, it runs deep in his heart. It's it's everywhere. 
as he, as he writes to them. And he, and he wants them to share in that hope that he has as those who are set apart from the world, a, a world that's turning its back on them. So from the starting gun, Peter praises God for the living Savior as a living soul with a living hope. And we said that living hope has a foundation. It's built on something. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to support the weight of its own expectations. And Peter identifies three foundation stones that this living hope is built upon. And this is just a review from last Sunday. First, he says you can have a living hope because we have a future reward. He's done all that he's done in verse 3 so that you and I might obtain, verse 4, an inheritance. Because we are born again, we now bear the title children of God. That's who we are. John says everyone who believes in him, to everyone who trusts upon the name of Christ, God gives them the privilege, the right to become children of God. And so as children, we're part of his family. We're, We're part of the family and now we, we, as being a, a member of that family, it comes with benefits. We, we share in the family's possessions. We, we share in our, in our Heavenly Father's privileges. Because we're part of God's family, we have what Christ has, we said. We have the privileges. We, Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians 1, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And the Bible calls that our inheritance. And we said, you know, that incorporates many things, but a few that we drew to the foreground was that in the future, we will be made like Christ. In other words, we will be holy, perfectly holy. uh, Another component of that inheritance is not only that our soul will be perfected, but our, our soul will be united to a glorified body that's fit for eternity. And thirdly, we get in that glorified body, uh, in that future uh, life that we will have, all the pri- we get to enjoy all the privileges of the new heavens and earth that God is going to create. And we get to enjoy fellowship with God himself. So the believer's living hope, he says, is first grounded on the reality that God has given us a future reward. And he's also, secondly, we saw he gave us uh, that reward, and that reward can never be lost. Right? It is, he says, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. We said that you could summarize that statement as our, our inheritance is death-proof, it is sin-proof, and it's time-proof. It's been laid up in heaven for us, and it is, it is waiting for us. And he says, thirdly, we can have a living hope because not only do we have this reward, and that reward is secure, but we are presently being protected by God's power. We see that in verse 5, right? They would have wondered in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their persecution, are we going to be able to grab a hold of this thing? Are we going to get there? And Peter says, he says, yes, you can. And here's why, verse 5, you are protected by the power of God through faith for this salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He says, if you're in Christ, you are kept by God's infinite power. He also affirms with certainty that all those who are Christ's sheep are kept by God's sovereign power through faith. Remember, we, 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 don't, we are not saved apart from faith. We are saved through faith. So the scriptures teach unequivocally that the true believer is sheltered in the almighty hand of God and will with absolute certainty be together with the Lord forever in glory. I mean, that's just, that's just the first three verses. <laughs> But Peter has a lot more 
to say. And he's going to tell us that in verses 6 to 12. When I was a, a kid, my grandmother loved QVC, Home Shopping Network. Is this still on TV anymore? I don't even know if it's still around. There was a season at the end of her life where that's all she watched. And she had money, and so she spent a lot of it on that kind of stuff. I was always amazed, no matter what they are selling on QVC or Home Shopping Network, they always follow the same format. The first, they show you the thing, the gizmo, the gadget, whatever it is they're selling. And they tell you about all the things that it does, and they, they have people come on, and they, they give you the whole spiel. And then they tell you how much it costs, right? Four easy payments of $39.99, right? So you never know that you're paying $120 for, like, some plastic buckets or something like that. Uh, you know, and then just when you're about to walk away or change the channel, what do they do? They rope you in. But wait, there's more, right? Order in the next 10 minutes and you get some bonus item throw in. Uh, for one additional payment, you can get not one but two avocado choppers or whatever it is that they're selling. There's something magical that happens in our brains when we hear the words, but wait, there's more. And in a sanctified sense, our text this morning in verses 6 to 12 is the Holy Spirit saying through Peter, but wait, there's more. But with one massive difference. With QVC or any infomercial, you can take or leave what they have to offer. It's just stuff that's here today, it's gone tomorrow. But what Peter offers us in these verses this morning, we absolutely need to know to stand firm. As those who are set apart, those sojourning through the wilderness of this sin-cursed world, as those who will experience some degree of suffering in this present life, Peter wants us to say, with, uh, from the depths of our heart this morning, without any irony, without any sarcasm at all, what a time to be alive in Christ. Prolonged suffering and hardship, they have this effect on our hearts. They have a way of bending and distorting the light as we walk down life's path. Almost like walking through some kind of hall of mirrors, right? Uh, hardship can cause us in one, for some of us to get trapped in the past. We can become, uh, uh, we can long for the good old days that, if truth be told, weren't all that different than the days that we live in now, just with a different set of problems. Um, sometimes hardship will cause us to be caught up in the things of the present. We look at the, the world around us, and, and that's what consumes us. We make our lives about the things of the world. Sometimes hardship can cause us to become bitter and cynical about the future. And as disappointment after disappointment kind of pile up one after another, and the reality that life is breath, like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, that can set in and we actually can become angry. We become angry toward God and we can become angry toward others. All of these distorted ways of looking at life lead to spiritual complacency in, the, in our Christian walk. They, they stifle growth in godliness. And to put it in terms of our philosophy of ministry, they hinder us from the work of making and maturing disciples of Christ who run to win. And what Peter wants us to understand is that sorrow and joy are a normal part of the Christian's life often at the same time. 
And while grief is a part of living in this fallen world, faith in Christ looks with ever-increasing joy to what's to come and says, what a time to be alive in Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me at first at verses 6 to 9, because that's kind of one section, and then there's a pivot in verses 10, 11, and 12. Peter begins here in verse 7. After all that he said about the blessed hope that we have, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I want you to look with me first at verse 6. Beginning in verse 6, Peter points out, and this is kind of the first point in our outline, the pattern of the believer's present life. And the pattern is this, joy and trials. Joy and trials. So we begin with the pattern in verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now, if you look um, at... I'm kind of wired to pick apart the text. It's kind of how I think about it when I read, especially a New Testament letter. When I see in this you greatly rejoice, I immediately ask myself, what is this referring to? What is the this referring to? What are we greatly rejoicing in? When you dig into the text, you find out he's not just referring to the future salvation of their souls that he talks about in verse 5. They're not just greatly rejoicing that some future event will transpire, like, like one day you'll retire you know, in the future and, and not have to work anymore, uh, or one day I'll take this special vacation, down, you know, thinking ahead. The this in verse five, or verse six, excuse me, is far more comprehensive. Their present joy rises out of everything that he just said in verses three, four and five. They are greatly rejoicing because they have a living Savior. They are rejoicing because they have, God has made them a living soul. They are rejoicing because they have a living hope. They are rejoicing because they have an eternal reward, and that reward can never be lost, and they are presently protected by the power of God. You pile all that God has done for you up in Christ, and he says, in this you are continually rejoicing. And this term for joy in the New Testament uh, is, is not the kind of standard word we think, for, think of when we think of joy. It's a different term. It, it has the idea of deep spiritual joy. It's a continual rejoicing in God or what God has done. So uh, you might call it salvation joy. It's different than the fruit of the Spirit word, joy. Mary uses it in her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. Remember when she goes to visit Elizabeth and the Spirit of God causes her um, to just blow up with praise and she says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's the word for joy that we see here. Peter says that there is a palpable salvation joy that ought to accompany God's people as we walk through this present life. And all the more, and we stop and think about what's to come. 
So sour, cynical, frowny-faced Christianity is incongruent with being a chosen, sanctified, sprinkled king of, uh, child of the king of kings. It just doesn't compute. Greatly rejoicing in heavenly realities is to be a normal part of the everyday Christian's life. But life along this pilgrim path isn't all rainbows and unicorns. There is a very real suffering that we endure. And you see that later on in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter makes clear that these believers are greatly rejoicing, even though now for a little while they are distressed, or um, I think ESV might translate it, grieved by various trials. It is good, I think, for us to remind ourselves of this, that we have the capacity to process more than one emotion at the same time. God has created us to do that. You can be greatly rejoicing in all that God has done for you in Christ, even while at the same time you are grieved by the hard things that come into our lives. And Paul does this. You see this in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. He says, we are, not, uh, we are perplexed, but not despairing. We are uh, not forsake, uh, struck down, but not destroyed. Persecuted, but not forsaken. In other words, um, emotionally speaking, we are not binary, right? It's not on or off, happy, sad. You can, you can actually experience both realities in their own way at the same time. Why are we able to greatly rejoice even in the midst of trials? Peter says, because for the believer, those trials are measured out to us by God's great and infinite wisdom. That's why he says what he says in verse 6. There's this little kind of a conditional statement, if necessary, if necessary. What's implied there is if necessary in God's sight. See, God is the necessary cause of all things. And so he may deem it necessary for us to endure various trials. Peter says, uh, excuse me, Calvin says of this text in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says, Peter's purpose was to show that God does not thus try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without a cause, it would be grievous to bear. Hence, Peter has taken an argument for consolation from the design of God, not because the purpose always appears to us, but because we ought to be fully persuaded that it ought to be so because it is God's will. Everything God does for you that he does for me in Christ works for our ultimate good. Everything. And so we can expect at times that God will deem it necessary for us to endure trials rather than avoid them. This is part of walking through this life. So the pattern of this present life has been set. There will be joy even in the midst of grief. Now, as readers might then ask themselves, what possible purpose might God have for distressing us, grieving us in the midst of various trials? I mean, if he loves us, why does he afflict us? And that question is answered for us in the beginning part of verse 7, where we see the proof, the second point in our outline. See the pattern Verse 7, the proof. He says, 
He has distressed us by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here Peter explains the underlying and underlying, not the only, and underlying reason for or purpose that God deems it necessary for, to bring trials into our lives. And that is to test the genuineness of our faith. They are there to test the genuineness of our trust in God. The word for proof here in the NAS is probably better translated as it is in the ESV as genuineness. When a precious metal like gold or, fire, or, or silver is fired in a furnace, right, its purity is revealed and that, that metal is refined. You find out, is it all dross or is there actually something of substance here? And Peter says, just as a refiner's fire tests the purity of gold or silver in a similar way, God may deem it necessary to test the purity of our faith in Christ, primarily for our benefit, for us, to see what kind of faith we really have. It's not for his benefit, (laughs) Because he's the one who knows all things, and he knows what's in the heart of man. He doesn't need to test it to see, well, I don't know, what is this? No, he knows exactly what's in our heart. It is for our benefit. It is for our benefit. This has always been God's pattern with his people. So you go back to the Old Testament, look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. God says to Israel through Moses, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt. Why? To be a people for his own possession as today. So, you know, Israel, he brought them into the land of Egypt, into slavery, so that he could try them and test them and then bring them out. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 10, we saw this in our study through that book several months ago. God says of Israel's coming judgment and exile, he says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. This is God's purpose. They had sinned. He was going to bring them down into the Babylonian captivity. And then he would bring them out. This is God's pattern. It was true of Israel before they entered the land. It was true of Israel when they were in the land. It's true of God's people today. It's the same for us. So trials have a way of stripping away the impurities of our faith. And what's left when those trials pass is a genuine faith like pure gold or silver that emerges out of the fire. Except gold and silver, which are valuable in their own right, he says, cannot hold a candle to faith because genuine faith carries us all the way to glory. He uses a comparative in verse 7. It is more precious. Our faith is more precious than gold, which is, he said, part of the things of this world. It's perishable. So one of the reasons... Not the only, but one of the reasons God deems it necessary for us to be fired in the furnace of affliction is to reveal to us what kind of faith we really have. What's it made out of? And I don't know about you, I'd rather find that out now in this life than to get to the end of the age to perish and hear the Lord say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Of course, That's not what Peter expects for his readers to hear. He doesn't expect them to hear a word of condemnation when they stand before the Lord. And that's why he strikes a hopeful tone at the end of verse 7. 
He says, I want you to understand that this is to prove, to test the genuineness of your faith, which is so precious, so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see the pattern, the proof. Thirdly, we see the praise. The praise. We see the praise in verse 7. Peter believes, he expects that because his audience have been chosen by God, they have been sanctified and sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. And because they are being kept by the power of God, protected by his power for a future reward, he believes that trials will ultimately bring their lives uh, into conformity with Christ and their faith will be proven genuine. He believes that. He says, listen, God's going to refine your faith in the furnace of affliction, but the result of that is going to be heavenly commendation. He's not talking about our praise of God here in verse 7 when he talks about praise and glory and honor. It's not us giving praise to God. He's, he's speaking of God's praise and glory and honor showered upon us. Similar to uh, alluding to what Paul says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul says, God will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then he says, each man's praise will come to him from God. So this is a good reminder for us to live for the line of eternity and not man's approval in the present. In this present life, faith doesn't receive a lot of external commendation. It doesn't receive a lot of external affirmation. It doesn't come with external rewards handed to us by the world. It just doesn't. But Peter reminds them that that doesn't mean faith doesn't have any outward evident reward. It does. It's just that reward comes later. It comes at the end of the age, at the bema seat of Christ. He says, then, then each man's praise will come to him from God. You, need, you and I need to understand that God's purposes in distress, in trial, may not be fully revealed to us in a month. They may not be revealed to us in a, in a, in a year or a, even in a lifetime. Some of God's purposes in our trials might only be revealed to us in that final day. And so you and I trust God because you know him to be worthy of trust, not because of what he is allowing to happen in our lives. And when you can't see the reason for a trial, it's in those moments that trusting God becomes most precious and pure in his sight. And that's the point of verses 6 and 7. Our God delights to be trusted, and he will not forget. But the rewards of trusting Christ in the midst of trials, they're not, thankfully, all future. They're not all at the end of the age, we receive the benefits of them in a preliminary way, even in the present. So we see the pattern, the proof, the praise. Thirdly, or fourthly, we'll see in verses 8 and 9, the prize. Look at verse 8. He says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you, not, though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Our faith, our trust, our confidence in Jesus for our eternal salvation is unshakable, even though we cannot see him. 
Put simply, we believe in him whom we do not see. That's what it means to have faith. It doesn't make sense from, like, that doesn't make sense logically. Most people have trouble believing things they don't see. They just struggle with that. But then again, faith is an illogical deduction. It's not a logical exercise, right? The, the Pharisees actually saw Jesus, and they said he did what he did by Satan's power. So, so much for seeing. But Peter says, we don't just see Jesus, we also love him. While we don't see Jesus, we believe in him. And this, uh, there's a preposition that's connected to this word believing in verse 8 that is interesting, it's worth noting. It implies deep personal involvement in our belief on Christ. It's like we're going in and resting in him. Makes me think of Proverbs 18 and, and verse 10 where uh, Solomon says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous runs into it and is safe. I remember playing um, a game, games of tag and PE in elementary school. And sometimes they would set up teams and there were these bases you could touch and if you're, any part of your body was inside the base, you couldn't be tagged out. And I remember many times running with existential dread as some kid on the other team is screaming my direction, only to step into the base at the last possible moment and to be completely and instantly secure. In that moment, I remember feeling this sense of overwhelming joy and triumph. Right? I, even though I, the game wasn't over, I would felt like I'd won. Beloved, when you and I run into Christ by faith, we are instantly safe, eternally. The opponent, Satan, and his instrument of fear, death, cannot touch us. And Peter says that causes us, even now, in this present life, to overflow with glorious, inexpressible, heavenly joy. The faith we walk in day after day allows us to experience more and more and more of that future salvation blessing that will be ours in full when Christ comes back. It's almost like we're receiving regular dividend checks on some massive inheritance held in trust. And when we're finally old enough, the whole sum will be at our disposal to enjoy to the fullest. So we see the prize is something we get to enjoy even now. So we see the pattern, the proof, the praise, the prize. Fifthly, in verses 10 and 11, we see the prophets. We see the, the prophets. Look at verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of this grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, searching to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter says, speaking of this salvation that you're already delighting in presently and will delight in for all eternity, this is not a small thing. This is not a small thing. In fact, he says, the new covenant spiritual blessings that you and I are tempted to take for granted are something that the old covenant prophets were more than a little interested in. He said they made careful searches and inquiries about how God's salvation plan was going to ultimately be worked out. It has the idea of active effort. 
And this term seeking that uh, at the beginning of verse 11, at the beginning uh, of verse 11, has the idea of searching through Scripture. That term is connected to searching through Scripture. It's used that way in John chapter 5 and verse 39, and chapter 7 and verse 52 of, of John's gospel, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you need to search the Scriptures. So what he's saying here, seems to be saying, is that the Old Testament prophets searched through what God the Holy Spirit revealed to them and even earlier authors of the scriptures to understand specifically the person and the time that Messiah would suffer and be exalted in kingdom glory. They want to understand it. They wanted to know it. It's not that they didn't understand what they were saying. So we shouldn't read verses 10 and 11 as if they spoke and had no clue what they were talking about. They absolutely understood what they were saying. What they didn't know was how it was all going to come together. They didn't know specifically in what person and at what time. That was not clear to them. But they were looking through a hazy lens. And all they could see were bits and pieces, contours and outlines. They got the understanding of it. They understood what was going to happen in in a general sense but they couldn't see its specifics. So predictions of Christ's suffering, of course, are all over the Old Testament. We've seen so many of them in our study through Isaiah. So are are predictions of his glory. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that we should read and study the Old Testament prophets eagerly. We should expect our hearts to be stirred up even more as we search the scriptures the Old Testament scriptures, to an even greater degree because we know who and we know at what time. You ever watch a film, like a whodunit type film? When you watch it the first time, as you're watching it, you kind of, you try and guess how the conflict is going to be resolved in the the film. But if it's a really well-made movie, you probably won't be able to fully understand it until you see the final minutes till you get to the end. But what happens? If you go back and watch that movie a second time, right, things just start to jump out at you left and right. Like, oh, I know, this is, that's that, you know, and it all makes sense. The prophets were watching redemptive history like a film for the first time. They never saw the end. You and I, as New Covenant believers, have seen the end of the film, And now we get to go back and to read the Old Testament scriptures like we're going back and watching that film for a second time. And now things jump off the pages at us. And so it comes alive in our hearts. We see the pattern, the proof, the praise, the prize, the prophets. Sixth and finally, we see the privilege. Verse 12. Here Peter brings it all home. He says... It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets searched. They inquired. They scoured the scriptures to understand who. They wanted to know at what time Messiah would come. And all they got to see were the contours of that. All they got to see were the outlines of that, bits and pieces. But the Spirit did reveal one thing to them. He says here in verse 12, they weren't serving themselves but you. The Holy Spirit revealed to God's prophets 
that their prophetic words about Messiah's suffering and glory were not going to unfold in their age, but in some future generation. They knew that much. And while that prophetic word would have absolutely given comfort, it would most certainly have given them hope in their present life as they, as they looked forward in faith. Peter says they were given the words that they wrote, the words that they preached, were given to minister to you and to me as new covenant believers. Romans 14, uh, 15 and verse 4, Paul says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul says there, Now these things happened to them, speaking of Old Testament Israel, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. How special are the new covenant blessings that we have at our fingertips? Verse 12 says, They are things into which angels long to look. That's a mind-blowing thing to consider. Peter says that even as he writes, angels are looking upon what is happening on earth with a holy curiosity as to how God's kingdom plan is actually unfolding in the lives of individual believers through his church. Peter says all of redemptive history, like a wave has been building and cresting and with incredible divine force is coming crashing down on you and on me with heavenly blessings, the likes of which no group in human history has ever known. He says, yes, you are being distressed by various trials now for a little while. Yes, you are being pushed to the margins of society. And you're often, he said, the, the, the object of contempt and scorn and that the world hates hates you because it hates the truth. He says, but God is not forgotten and he will praise you in that final day. And even now you get to enjoy dividend payments of inexpressible joy of an inheritance that will be ours in full for all eternity. And he says, you get to understand that you're the, you're the recipients of God's greatest blessings. You're the most privileged of God's people throughout all of redemptive history. The prophets were serving you. The gospel of grace was preached to you. The Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven to you. The heavenly angels look down with wonder at what God is doing for you. And so, beloved, the only fitting response to such a privileged position is to say in our hearts, what a time to be alive for Christ. What a time. What a time to worship and praise the King of Kings. What a time to serve and love his holy bride, the church. What a time to preach the gospel to the lost in a dying world. Let's pray. Father, we do not appreciate the things you have given us. I'm convicted that you would do all this for us. When we have given you absolutely nothing in return, you're a God of infinite grace. And Lord, as we walk through various trials, as we suffer, and we will suffer, some of us have suffered a tremendous hardship and loss consequences of sin and just providential circumstances that have been beyond what we could bear at times. Help us understand that that is all momentary light affliction 
as Paul says, that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And all that you have done, you have done for us. You've done it for us. May we appreciate this wonderful and glorious salvation that we get to walk in. And help us, Lord, like Peter wanted his readers to do, to look with hope and joy for the future as well. We ask that you would do this in our hearts. And Lord, if there's any outside of Christ this morning, may they see what grace there is to be found. May they run into Christ and be secure. Even this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.